You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. And welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. I am joined by my co-host, Max Linsky. How are you, guy? I'm excited for this week's episode. It's, it's, a, uh, it's a classic Lammer topic. I don't know what that means, but I did enjoy myself. Uh, I talked <laughs> to Taylor Lorenz. Uh, she covers what she describes as internet culture. Uh, you might know it as the world of uh, YouTube streamers influencers, uh, a.k.a. what is actually uh, popular among young people uh, in culture today. Um, I have always really liked her reporting. It's very much from inside that world, not from the outside. And uh, she knows about niches that I could not have even imagined. The Lammer thing is that you like uh, inexplicable internet things. I do like inexplicable internet things, and I should note, uh, when I did this interview with Taylor, which was not very long ago, uh, she was a uh, writer at The Atlantic. Uh, today, completely randomly, we are uh, going to post the show. Uh, she has accepted a job at The New York Times. We did not discuss that because I was unaware of it, but <laughs> con congratulations to her. Well, this is sort of like a uh, exit interview then. It's uh, She can send it to her boss at The Atlantic, um, who she had nothing uh, but good things to say about, but she will be working uh, for the styles section of The New York Times going forward. I'll tell you who I have nothing but good things to say about. MailChimp. That's right. Uh, they're great people, and they do things like uh, Read This Summer. Read This Summer is a, uh, a program they've been doing for years now. Uh, we did it one summer. They pick... Uh, someone to choose a group of journalists, a group of authors who have books out. Uh, they build a website for them. It's at readthissummer.com. This year, it's Jenna Wortham. It's her picks. And uh, so if you're looking for something to read, go to readthissummer.com. There's an incredible list of books up there. And then the whole group will be together at the Decatur Book Festival Labor Day weekend in Atlanta. Uh, if you are around, or even if you're not, Make your way there. Go say hi to Jenna and all those folks. And uh, say hi to the MailChimp people, too. And Evan Ratliff, who will be there. And uh, I have heard rumors that uh, Evan will be back in the studio next week. True or false? True. Evan's long-awaited return is, uh, is, is imminent. Uh, thanks to MailChimp. Thanks to Evan for coming home. Thanks to everyone. <laughs> 
And thanks to Taylor Lorenz. Here she is with Aaron. Welcome, Taylor Lorenz. Thank you for having me. Um, I met you probably like going on 10 years ago. Almost. It's um, crazy that it's almost, it's been that long. Ooh. It's not really like actually all that interesting a story. We met at a weird do-it-yourself, do-it-yourself technology festival. I think we actually share... Um, People get annoyed and say that this show is all um, us having our friends on. But I do think we yeah. actually shared a cab home from that technology. Yeah, because we got back really early in the morning. Yes. Yeah. That's and right. you still live in Williamsburg? I lived in I, Williamsburg and I think you lived around there. I, that is, I still do. Yeah. So tell me what brought you from there to now where you're the. Uh, the expert, I would say, oh. the online expert. <laughs> what do you yeah. what do you what do you call the field that you cover? I usually just tell people that I cover internet culture. Yeah, which okay. Is so broad, but it's kind of like that also means something different to everyone. So you, it's kind of hard to explain. But um, right about influencers, meme culture, emergent behavior on different social apps. Like very broadly, um, how I think of my beat is sort of how technology affects the way people communicate. And the people that you cover are very young. Usually, for the most part. yeah, it's kind of like I would say seventy percent of the time I'm writing about like young people, meaning people under the age of twenty-five. But it varies. Like I, I don't know. Somebody wrote something about me a while ago and was calling me like teen reporter, and I. It's not at all how I think of myself, I guess, because I always think of like, so, or I notice some trend online, and often it's a teenager behind it because the internet is run by teenagers. Yeah. But I, I don't know. I've written a lot of other stories about like older people too. Well, I mean, I think one of the things that distinguishes it, there's a lot of actually people who've been on the show who write about uh, the technology industry, um, who write about how social networks interact with democracy, all of these things. It feels like you write heavily within these cultures and in some ways are reacting to some of the outsider reportorial takes that maybe aren't quite as deep in that world and are more representing the viewpoint of a older person looking at youth <laughs> culture. And I feel like I've consistently enjoyed in your work that it feels like you are debunking a certain amount of our assumptions about how young people live online and talking pretty directly with them about it. Yeah, yeah. It's funny. I, there is so much amazing technology coverage of people that really focus on like the darker areas of internet culture and yeah. like trolls and, you know, like you said, democracy and crisis, which is very serious and everyone should be covering that more. It's it's great. But I kind of actively avoid all of that. I'm very interested in sort of like online fame and fame in general and kind of how you know, different tech platforms facilitate that. So I've covered influencer stuff since the beginning. And yeah, I, I have a sneaking <laughs> suspicion that those darker storylines are not actually distinct from some of that fame stuff. Like a lot totally. of the same, this, yeah. the same levers are being pulled yeah. just to different ends and the techniques and tools and culture that creates I think you wrote about the Christchurch manifesto. Yeah. That is both of that very dark world and it's also of like game streamer yeah. culture. And I write about gaming stuff too sometimes. I guess that's true. And I, it's more just like the overtly political stuff is like, I, I don't know, because I wrote about like Gen Z QAnoners. It's more, I guess, like the younger angle of it and mm -hmm. less like some very far removed writer that like doesn't understand you know who PewDiePie is like making commentary I guess I, I don't know I try to like be in the worlds that I cover a little bit more so 
was this something that was an ambition of yours? Um, how did you end up doing this? <laughs> no. So when I met you, I was still doing social media for Verizon, I, I think. I think so, yes. Because um, we were at this conference. I basically went to that conference because like, some of my friends from the internet were going, and I was like, sounds cool. Um, it was the first year of XOXO, for people wondering. Anyway, um, they were like, it was like maybe 2011, I can't remember, but it was when everyone was bashing like social media managers and like how cringy are they? Yeah. And it's very like, like it was full of these amazing indie creators. Um, but it's funny because like I went back to XOXO last year, actually, since the first time. And it was amazing because I felt like all of those people that were like the internet creators at that time last year, it's like people that actually really harness these platforms and grow followings and have big followings. And it's just such a different I don't know people viewed it very differently in like 2011 but um or 2012 I can't remember it's interesting actually thinking back on on that and just the word creator like yeah I'm not even I think that conference might have been the first time where I just heard creator creator I wrote a history of the word creator and where how it was developed and you wrote a history of that (laughs) and I think that in your work it's to simply be called a creator which is sort of this blanket term that I guess covers everything from being like having a YouTube channel to like hacking drones yeah. to um, I think like probably like people who start startups think of themselves as creators yeah. now. It, it's it's broadened and it strikes very differently if you're like, oh, you know, there's a word for this. Influencer is another one. These are words that really are within the last 10 years entering into our lexicon. And I would argue that a lot of people if you just use the term creator or influencer in an article, would have no idea what you're talking about. It was about. kind of a fight to get The Atlantic to let me use the word influencer oh, <laughs> in an article without defining it. That would be Your job would be very hard if you couldn't use the word influencer it, ever. Look at my early work on TheAtlantic.com. I used to have to define it. Um, no shade to my editors. I get it. I mean, I think it's really valuable to be able to put stuff in context for readers that might not understand. And yep. also, you know, there's value to being precise and explaining what you mean when you're, you know, when you say influencer, because right. everyone has it different kind of interpretation of it. So you started as a social media manager. What did it mean to be a social media manager in 2011? Back then, you could do whatever you wanted is what it meant. I worked in an ad agency called McGarry Bowen, which at the time was like ad week, ad age agency of the year that year. Like it was like the very hot agency. And um, I basically got hired there because I had made some like popular tumblers that people followed, and I have to ask what, what were they these were tumblers so about? stupid. It, I I made first of all I made an endless amount of them. I tried to categorize how many I had because I went back and was deleting a lot of them just because Tumblr. I was like, I need to privatize and get all these off the internet. Um, but I it was like single serving tumblers, like every single thing I saw. Like I would be like podcast studio Tumblr or something. It was all based on submissions. So I would start them and then like have people submit. So my two biggest ones were on bagels and sprinkles. And it was like bagels, bagels, something, or I don't know. The, I can't remember the exact URL, but it was like some random. And then I would post pictures of bagels when I ate them. And then I had people submit bagels and I would reblog photos of bagels. And it, it sounds so stupid, but it's like I did this for everything that I looked at in the world. I mean, I did, I made a new Tumblr like every week and I was spending 16 hours a day on Tumblr. What was your intention? I loved Tumblr. I just thought it was fun and uh, funny and I wanted to see like how big I could get them. Like I would try to see like first, you know, could I get it to 500 followers? Could I get it to a thousand? Who could I get to reblog it? 
how far could I make it go? It was just kind of like a fun thing I was doing at what, my temp job. What else? Yeah, I was going to say what else we were doing if like you're doing working this. working bullshit jobs in like a call center and like at just like shit you do after you graduate college and you don't have a job. <laughs> <laughs> I was like registered with a lot of like temporary staffing agencies, you know, yeah. so they just send you out and you do those, some. Those staffing agencies are still emailing me. Like I'll, oh okay, I'll, yeah. I'll occasionally get a weird like, do you want to come in and do Photoshop <laughs> editing? I'm like, I, I have not been looking for a job like this since like 2007 yeah. <laughs> um, but I'm glad I'm still in your directory and uh, there's definitely not any way to get out of that directory once you're one in time it. I went to a staffing agency and they were like we don't have any openings but our receptionist just quit can you just go sit at the reception desk and I was like great and I was a receptionist there for a couple months uh, it was all admin jobs and so I had a lot of time to spend on Tumblr and I just I mean when this girl that I shared a cubicle with like introduced me to Tumblr and I just it changed my life. Like I wasn't really on the internet before then at all, at all. What um, What were you like? Where, where did you grow up? I grew up in Connecticut, in Greenwich, Connecticut. I went to this um, kind of small Swiss boarding school, and then I went to University of Colorado for college. I kind of just this is so lame, but I was obsessed with being popular, and I I thought the internet was for like losers. So I had like aim. You're you're right. You're right. I had Facebook <laughs> and college. I'm so mad now, but yeah, but I like love the internet now. I was like, why was I like not? online more I was too busy like just I don't know hanging out at the mall or something but uh, so I like I had Facebook in college but I wasn't really like involved in it and I just yeah it wasn't until I got on Tumblr that I was like oh my god this is my life now well it's not so strange to me that I don't know what you mean by being popular but <laughs> what, what you you're interested in is often in people who have this sort of uh, unquenchable thirst for popularity yeah. and fame and people who've almost abstracted the idea of being like a creator or art into basically like a pure viral understanding of themselves yeah. as a popular figure. What interests you about that and, and what have you learned about it and writing about it? Yeah, I would say I'm really interested in like social dynamics, I guess. Like, I guess what I mean by that is like I was always really shy when I was younger and I I kind of like wanted to be cool, but I wasn't ever cool. I mean, I was cool in like the nerdy kid cool way, but like not cool, cool, but also not nerdy enough to like be on the Internet. So yeah. I I don't know. It was this like weird thing. And I just was really interested in social dynamics. I remember when everyone got on web shots. Did you ever remember web shots? I don't, I don't know. It was gone. It was like an early flick. It was like before Flickr. But all these girls in high school put their stuff on web shots. And I just remember you could see like who was in everyone's web shots. And I was just really interested in that because some girls got like a lot of attention on it. It was a weird system. But like. I don't know. So I just I've always been interested in kind of like how people present themselves online and how technology affects how people connect. It wasn't that I got really interested in like online fame, I would say, until Tumblr, because I had achieved like some modicum of it, I guess. Like people in the Tumblr community, some of them knew who I was. And um, like I went to a couple of Tumblr meetups uh, in like 2009, 2010. And like, you know, there'd be like people that ran popular Tumblrs and it just got me interested in like how it all worked, I guess. I didn't ever want to be that myself, though. It was more like I was just more interested in the mechanics of it, like how the platform treated certain tweets and like how you could get in tr a trending topic or something more than like, oh, let me be a YouTuber or something with my face in front of it. <laughs> <laughs> so you started as a social media manager, yeah. which is like sort of on the opposite side of the equation from being a reporter, but is not like totally 
dissimilar? Yeah, it was. I mean, so those days it was great to be a social media person because like you could do there was not really analytics on the Internet yet. And also any brand just like wanted to say that they had like a Tumblr or a Facebook page or a Twitter so there was almost no oversight. Like I would post things on the Bud Light Facebook page and like the client would sort of approve them, but basically not really care. Like now it's so like there's just so much feedback and, you know, that's it's a whole system. And there wasn't as much money floating around anyway. So I did. Yeah, I was in advertising and it wasn't until sort of 2012, I think it was, that I um, left McGarry Bowen because I got this job at the Daily Mail. The Daily Mail at that time didn't even have like they barely had share buttons on the website. They didn't really until end of 2012. And then they didn't have a Facebook page, really. They didn't have like an active Twitter account. So I kind of pitched the idea to them of like joining. Like they wanted to hire somebody to set those things up, I think, because the editor there was like, we need someone. And I was like, let me do it. Let me just take over everything in the whole company and your whole global system. So I started all of that for them and then hired a team of like 11 people and was like, I mean, I was like really young person in senior management there. Daily Mail is like one of the biggest. It is the biggest. It's the biggest newspaper in the world. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, this is, this will be a good piece of history when people listen to this like in 20 years. Like the biggest newspaper in the world is less than 10 years into doing social media at all. That is. What I did for that company, not to like toot my own horn, but like what I did for that company was crazy and insane. And I am like the reason I sound so arrogant, but like I fucking worked my ass off and like I built that company's social presence. And like, so props to me. (laughs) I spread a lot of celebrity news all over the internet. But I mean, so did all the amazing people that I worked with too. But it was a great brand because it's like a tabloid and it's like very kind of questionably (laughs) accurate sometimes. And anyways, it was a good brand to kind of start social for. Did you start having like ambitions to write while you were doing that? No, 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 no. I never wrote. So I always like, I basically worked in social strategy. After I left the Daily Mail, I was getting really burned out. So I just like went to a consulting role with them. And then started doing strategy for other media organizations. So I was like at Mental Floss as their like director of partnerships or something, sort of running social campaigns for them. I did a bunch of other like branded work for like clients like Adobe and tech companies and stuff. And then around that time, I was really interested in this idea of like online fame. And so I pitched this idea. I thought about starting my own media company, but I didn't want to do that. But I basically was like, maybe I'll just get somebody else to pay me to do this. So I like went to Time Inc. and basically they helped me. I I helped start this sub-brand within People magazine that was solely dedicated to covering influencers and online creators. And that's, I did more reporting for that. Like I would interview these YouTube stars and I would like, I handled all the editorial strategy for that launch and it kind of just got me like, maybe I should cover stuff, but I didn't think I was a good enough writer to ever be a reporter. So anyway, after that, I didn't want to move to LA for that job to do it any longer. And I got this opportunity to work for Nitsan Zimmerman, who um, used to be a gawker for a long time, but he was like a viral, like if you Google his name, he's like very I'm, viral. I'm just going to keep filling in the, uh, yeah. the for the history books. So um, gawker at the time uh, was public with its traffic. I mean, maybe it still is actually. Different ownership. <laughs> um, so you could see how many clicks each writer drove each month. And I don't remember the exact percentage, but for a period of time, Nitzan Zimmerman was driving like half of the traffic to like Gawker. More, he was like, yeah, he was responsible for like almost all the traffic. So he's just, I don't, we, I should have him on the show because yeah. I, I don't know how he 
was given this gift and curse, but he had just sort of cracked personally, um, like what would go viral on Gawker. And it came to a point, as I recall, where like he became almost vital and it became like a big problem when he eventually left because he was more than half of the traffic that came every month. And I don't really remember like what it was he was posting. I think what he was posting would now just be known as sort of viral clickbaity yeah. content, but at the time was radical yeah. and it's viral clickbaitiness. He's really good at story framing. So he also founded this Tumblr called The Daily What. It's, I kind of knew him from that. He's done a lot of cool stuff with internet. He worked yep. at Cheeseburger. So basically he got hired at The Hill, which is a political news site, to kind of like revamp their social stuff. And offered me a job. And I was like, great, I'll do it. I've never covered an election, whatever. So I worked for him for two years at the Hill working on social stuff. Nitsan is the best editor I've ever worked with in my life in terms of like headlines and story framing. Like he will take something. I mean, truly the only person I've ever met that ever rivals him is the editor in chief of the Daily Mail, who's like a genius, who should actually be credited with all their success because he is a genius. But I think like what Nitsan does so well is like he'll take a boring local news story or he'll like spot a boring news story that isn't picked up yet and like frame it in a different way and make it blow up. But like it's clickbaity, but it's not like he's also just very good at pulling out quotes, very good at like understanding what people will share and read. So I mean, there's a similarity between that and your work in that you're not like doing like an investigation that like (laughs) reveals something we never knew about these people. Like most of the information that you're reporting on, it's like pretty well out there on the internet. But if you did not personally frame it for me, I would neither know it existed nor know that it would be something that would interest me. And it usually actually does interest me because honestly for me, like this whole world of influencers and YouTube creators is totally foreign. Like I feel like I'm, (laughs) it's like a secret world I don't know that exists, but I understand that you can't just be like, hey, there's a secret world, you should come and check it out. You have to give people some steps along the way. So like now you're working for The Atlantic, which is not maybe as virally traffic driven (laughs) as The Daily Mail. Like. What have you learned about framing these stories and what goes into your mind when you're thinking of one of these stories? What are the different packages and formats and what are the important parts? Yeah. What are the important boxes that it um, check? I guess when I think of a story, I, I always have like too many stories. So I'm usually like, oh, like it's a more prioritizing thing. But it's I don't know how to explain it because it's like somebody will tell me something. and I'm like, oh, that's a story or like, yep. oh, that's just something that people would share. I would say with The Atlantic, like even though. The framing, they might not end up putting that like sensational headline on it. I think that sensational headline in my head. You're just like whispering it under well, your breath. Well, <laughs> like for instance, I wrote a story this week on this influencer, this like exclusive influencer party that the Instagram throws on this beach by Malibu and whatever. And in my mind, I'll think of a headline like inside the elite exclusive influencer party that Instagram throws for like 500 top creators. Like that's the headline that I would yeah. put on it, right? If I worked at Daily Mail. The Atlantic, I think the headline was like, where everyone's an influencer or something like so it's like toned down. But the story is still that like angle of a like juicy kind of fun story, I guess. So like I do that with all my stories where I think of like, okay, what's like the tabloid headline on it, I guess you could say. And usually the headline that some place will put on it is different or, you know, whatever. We test headlines, too. But That's like how I think of it, I guess. I also, I don't do stories that other people wrote. So like, I don't like to, unless I have a take on it, like 
I don't, thankfully, because of the Atlantic, like it's not like I'm doing breaking news all the time. So I get to focus on stories that I'm more interested in too. So it's like kind of just sometimes I'm like, oh, I'm really interested in Discord, for instance, which is this like app. Like, you know, what what can I write about that? Or like, what's something interesting that's going on there? How much do you feel like you need to explain something like Discord to the Atlantic's audience? Like, to what degree of literacy do you expect um, people and the subjects that you're you're yeah. going over? It's really important to be accessible. Like, I always wanted to write for a mainstream audience. I, I didn't want to be a reporter just for people that care about this stuff already. I think because I felt like the stuff that I was covering was important and needed more people covering it and, like, needed to be validated and... So because I want to write for a mainstream audience, I sort of assume that people don't know what's going on or like don't maybe I think they should know what an influencer is by now, hopefully, but um, or have heard the word. But like, I definitely don't try to be like too insidery. Like you want to write in a way so that people who get it, like know that you're not an actual idiot. But like people who don't get it also don't feel left out. Yeah, I think that is like an essential tension. And when I read your work, even though I kind of each article does break these things down. I think you're telling kind of an overall story also. Like, how do you think about covering, for lack of a better word, micro trends within what you're doing? Like you wrote recently about how people are dropping the Instagram manicured lit aesthetic for sort of a like raw, more like personal, um, here's me with warts and all kind of thing, which is a subjective idea but it also like there's also like billions of dollars at stake. And these are the kind of things that people like pay consultants to tell them in boardrooms. <laughs> yeah. How do you think about covering those stories that are about changes within this economy, culture? <laughs> yeah, I love covering. I mean, those are my favorite stories to do just because like I like I'm very theoretical and I'll just like I like to like sit around and pontificate on things. Um so I I feel like with those stories, though, I have you can only do it if, one, it's really big and mainstream enough or, like, pronounced enough. Like, with that shift away from this one aesthetic to another sh- aesthetic, like, it's not just something I noticed. Like, it was kind of backed up by, like, a lot of different factors and numbers in terms of, like, account growth and stuff. And it was something that people in the industry were talking about so much, and I felt like nobody had really written the definitive piece on it. And so, you know, I felt like that would be valuable. With other trends, it really depends. Like, I mean, the smaller kind of YouTube things, like there's like trends in YouTube thumbnails, for instance, that like I probably wouldn't write like, hey, now everyone's doing this type of thumbnail now. But I might do like a larger look at like the importance of thumbnails and like kind of use that as a way to like talk about some of these changes. But it depends. I think you have to make it like a relevant enough story so that people have some bigger takeaway. What do you look for in terms of quotes and evidence for something like that like what um what do you look at as the source material that you build these arguments I mean, with that out of? one it was like very clear i mean you the good news about covering stuff like that is that you can see these trends play out in metrics so mm. it's like okay these influencers that are adopting this different aesthetic and different photography techniques and palette and stuff like their account growth is outpacing you know these other people that have stagnated so that was easy also just like it's something that a lot of people like internally like you were talking about marketers have thought about and we're collecting data on and you could see it sort of economically in the struggling 
way that some of these like Instagram museum type of like photography places had been struggling. Um, there was a lot not in that article that got cut. Shout out to my editor for making it better. But, <laughs> you know, I had interviewed a bunch of people that had had photo installations and nobody was really interested in taking pictures at them anymore. I talked to a couple of music festivals on how they had phased out a lot of the traditional Instagram stuff. So I feel like I talked to so many people to validate stuff and make sure it's widespread enough. I would say the other thing I look at is like memes around it because I think like it's easy to find like 20 or 30 people that will tell you something's a trend, but like the way to know if it really is is like if there's like meta commentary around it, I guess. So I usually look for that too. Like if I'm going to write about something, it has to be real enough that people are like talking about it. I think one of the biggest challenges of reporting on the social era has been metrics themselves. Like, what number is a video going viral? Like, yeah. you know, you'll see some like up and coming artist, like a pop artist, and I'll be like, his video went viral, 200,000 views. You're like, 200,000 views? This is, this is nothing. I think about that because, like, I think about that when I talk about my tumblers because I'm like, I remember being like, oh, yeah, like, I'm hot shit. I have all these viral tumblers. And I'm pretty sure they had like, I don't remember, but like a thousand or five thousand or, you know, ten thousand. And it's like now you would laugh at that. Well, and you can see like if you are a, you know, a new uh, musical artist in, in your region and have not broken out nationally and you have a video that gets a million views, that is like momentous for you. However, you also cover people like real YouTube stars to who if they ever put out a 1 million view video, they would like retire, you know, like, like well, yeah. I, guess, I guess 1 million is always like pretty, is pretty good. But you're talking about people who have over a million subscribers yeah. and have put out hundreds of videos that each have 1 million views. So how do you think about metrics? How do you write about metrics? How do you not get like sucked into the like exact moment where these things are going <laughs> up and down, what they mean? It depends on who you're writing about. And like, I mean, I think that you just have to be authentic. Like, I think that like why some of that other stuff is cringy is because it's like, it's disingenuous. It's like you're just trying to make this person seem like a bigger deal than they are so you can validate your article. Like, but it's like you don't always need metrics to have impact. Like there are people that are like very creative and groundbreaking or doing something interesting and emergent that like maybe they don't have all the followers yet, but they're doing something that's indicative of something bigger or they're breaking a norm in some way or they're interesting in some way. So it's like, I mean, I definitely don't subscribe to the idea of like, oh, you only cover the biggest people or those are the only... I mean, ContraPoints is a good example of this trans YouTuber, Natalie Wynn, that's like done amazing work and is constantly being written about and stuff. And I don't think she has that many... I mean, she has a couple hundred thousand subscribers, but it doesn't mean that it's not impacting culture or norms. Right. And like, so I think like it's just important when you're reporting on this stuff to put it in context. So how do you wade through this whole world? Like, what is your information diet like? Do you have like a... Um, this is what I like myself, but this is what I look into for work. Um, no, there's no barrier between my work and life, which is not so healthy. I know that's going to have to eventually change. Yeah. It's not sustainable. I mean, I think it's fine for now, but like I have a couple of friends that have kids and I'm like, okay, I guess there's times when you really can't do that. But yeah, I mean, I just spend a lot of time like looking around at stuff. Um, I, I spend so much time on Instagram. I kind of just talk to a lot of people online. There's no like one set thing. Like I go I wake up every morning and do this, this, this. It's more like 
I just kind of try to like absorb as much as possible from everywhere and then think like of interesting things. Are you behind the scenes as well? Like what you're describing of being on Instagram a yeah. lot is I mean, I the have like 32 experience. Instagram accounts. I set up accounts all the time just to lurk. I'm a big lurker. <laughs> what? Why so many accounts? Because you have to tailor your audience. Like if you only have your one Instagram account, you're only getting that perspective. It Instagram will serve you content related to what you're doing on that account. So yep. you have to get out of your bubble. And so if I want to learn about the car world or something, I set up an Instagram account and start posting about cars because that way, algorithmically, it'll start to feed you you know, stuff related to that, or you can go into a different community or learn about adjacent communities. So it's just like a better way. How do you manage these all these different Instagram accounts? Um, actually, one got banned recently, so it's like 31 now, I guess. I just like log in and out. You can only be logged in to five at a time. I have like my main account, like my main public account, and then like a personal account, and then like this TikTok aggregator account that I started. Those are like my main ones. And then the other two, I just like log out and log in depending on the day, kind of like what I'm into. Are, are people aware that these accounts are run by Atlantic journalist no, Taylor Lorenz? I don't, no, because I don't really interact. If I So what I do is like, I have lots of accounts. Yeah. I just like lurk and then kind of determine like who's who in the community. And then if I want to talk to them, I follow them from my main because my main is verified. So if I message them from some random like car account, they'll be like, whatever, this yep. is some. But if I message them from my main that's verified that says like journalist at the Atlantic, they'll respond. So you you contact them from. <laughs> or they'll uh, be like, fuck you and yeah. block me. <laughs> <laughs> Assuming that they don't immediately block you. Like, what is your relationship with a. 17 year old influencer like what do they think about a reporter asking about what they do um usually they're down to talk i mean it depends it totally depends like i mean i'm in a lot of discord communities too with a lot of like young people and i'm always like hey i'm a reporter i mean sometimes i'm in a lot of group chats too with like people i put a thing in my instagram one time like add me to your group chat and like all these people added me to their group chats and i don't know i kind of like to lurk i assume i i want them to feel like comfortable enough with me but like not too comfortable with me because I want them to still like know that I'm a reporter you know and I'm not their friend yep. but I mean most I would say quote unquote influencers want I mean they want to talk about themselves because they want an audience <laughs> that's usually why they're online so they're usually down I would say what they don't like is being misrepresented in the press which happens frequently so I usually just have to kind of explain that like I'm not one of those reporters that's going to fuck them over on the other side of the coin when you have to explain to an editor or someone hiring you like why this world is important to someone who knows nothing about it like do you have a primer for like why what you're doing matters for someone who thinks it doesn't matter i mean so many people think it doesn't matter but it's changing. It, the past year has changed so much. The past year and a half. I would say like the Logan Paul video, the suicide video, when Logan Paul, who's a famous YouTuber, um, filmed and posted a video of this dead body in Japan of a man who had committed suicide. There was a huge backlash against that. That It's so weird because Logan Paul has done so much bad stuff over the years that I was like, when I first saw that, I was like, oh, of course he would do this, like whatever. And I don't know. It, I feel like for some reason that like broke through to a lot of people. And then, you know, more recently, there's just been a couple other dramas. So I feel like people have a greater awareness of who these people are and the audiences that they command. But there's not a lot of like thoughtful coverage. 
It's interesting that you cite that as like the a breaking point because that is about when I started paying attention yeah. more closely to this world. And, you know, I, I was like, okay, well, who's the most popular? And I think at least among the ones I sampled, like I, I checked out PewDiePie. I checked out the like H3H3 yeah. productions. I guess that's who you would aim in my direction if you were aiming them. And I guess I was shocked a little bit how dark the world they occupy is. Like, yeah. I think part of assuming that this world is vapid is ignoring that it's like more like a bunch of people who are like locked in a basement, yeah. but are millionaires <laughs> locked in a basement. <laughs> and all they're doing is talking about each other, commenting on things that each other did in videos, commenting on comments. There's so things. much. It's crazy. Okay, can we, I just, this is like something that I feel so strongly about when people are like, there's no coverage of these people. It's like there is endless coverage of these people. The it's, people who are really famous just are the media. They cover well, people. Right. Or PewDiePie it's like doesn't drama do alert. Anything. It's, or Pew News where he does a roundup and like, I, yeah, it's it, that's been like something that, because people will be like, well, where do I go to find information? I'm like, all they do is talk about themselves they, and they, start drama with each other and then make videos about it. You know, like I, one of the things that always like caught me is like, there's a lot of finger wagging, yeah. more finger wagging than I yeah. thought because I was like, these are the people who we wag our fingers at but all they're doing is wagging their fingers yeah. at each other where it's like, Logan Paul does these gift box videos yes, yes. and it's a scam and it's like ripping Jake off Paul, children yeah. and then it's like then that person is like shilling something else in a slightly more transparent way yeah. but um, it has that feeling of like a totally self-contained world and I think yeah. that can be confusing to journalists because journalists are used to this like well there's real life that people lead and then the journalists come in and tell you like what yeah. life is and this is like life and journalism and commentary and beef it's all in one everyone just wears all the hats yeah yeah it's funny like it's really different i would say what there is a lot of in that world i mean especially i wrote about those tea accounts recently which is like a big trend um is like the drama stuff i what, mean what are tea accounts oh they're um drama accounts they're like um <laughs> like the shade room oh i love the that shade kind room. of thing okay yeah. so there's like thousands of those so that's not i would call that gossip okay Okay, so I would call T accounts gossip accounts, gossip and they accounts. just post unverified news. But they all consider themselves journalists, kind of. So I don't want to like sh some of them do do like very legitimate reporting on people. Well, I mean, I think the Shade Room is incredible. It's like how I know about like half of the like celebrity stories. Yeah. But there is, I can see why you're like drawing a distinction between traditional gossip and them because often they will say something on Instagram, and then the person who's being referred to will respond on Instagram. Yeah. There'll be a news story. And it feels like this, like it, it's almost like if like every person CNN covered was in the CNN studio at all times and yeah. had their own show on CNN. Yeah. And it was like, Jake Tapper, fuck you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's all like, they all respond to each other. I mean, I wrote a long profile of Keemstar who runs Drama Alert, which is like a big YouTube channel that kind of also does this like daily news show of news related to influencers and YouTubers and stuff. And there's a lot of coverage of the drama of it. There's a lot of coverage of the scandals of it. What I think it misses is like putting it all in context in the broader society and like these bigger changes. And like, especially what we're talking about, like that drama part of YouTube is, I mean, everything on YouTube is drama, but like, I just think sometimes it's like misses a lot of the sub trends. And if you talk to these people about their work or lives, it's kind of like, that's what I like to get at. It's less the drama reporting. I mean, I love that stuff. I watch it all day. 
BuzzFeed just started a drama newsletter about influencers, and I was like, subscribe. I think I was always confused because I was like, oh, these are people who like lead double lives. Like they're like famous on the internet and they have a regular life. And I think that has become no. kind of an antiquated idea. Yeah. These are very full-time professions. And like, they're very like relevant in today and they're shaping media today. So it's like, that's what media looks like. Like if you want to think about like how news is like consumed and, and proliferates and stuff, it's those types of accounts. It's like the T account stuff. It's less like, the Jake Tapper stuff. So for you, like seeing media go in that direction, what's it like, you know, logging into the Atlantic CMS? Should I start CMS? a YouTube channel? Well, yeah, yeah, I mean, I'm curious. Like you are you are covering the most cutting edge media um, from a, a legacy publication that is itself going through its own digital transformation. Now, how do you feel about like the format that you're covering it in. It's like, cool. I mean, so the one thing that I would say is like I never anticipated being a writer and I still don't think I'm like the best writer. I mean, even when I make an article, I got told by one of our editorial assistants to stop putting so many pictures in and stuff. Like my inclination is to just kind of like embed everything that I found and like yep. make this whole thing. And It's hard not to because it's like, wh- like, what are you supposed <laughs> yeah. to like do a quote with quote marks? It's a tweet. It's you know, a, it's exactly. like you can put the tweet in the story. Yeah, it's like a lot of that stuff. I mean, I think also coming from working on like a social role and I worked on a lot of like I would say there was this trend around like distributed content. Like, let's make content for social media. So even writing an article is, I think, like, that's my biggest flaw. I'm not good at it in a lot of ways. Um, But it's fine. I like it. I think it's also a great way to consume information. And people still read articles. So I'm curious because I think more people (laughs) on the show are coming to this from being a writer and then are assigned to, say, cover something like technology. You are coming from that world and you've, like become a writer in that world what have the been the biggest challenges for you as a writer and um you know what have you learned about like turning this world into text yeah i mean i got really good at like doing these like quick trending posts for facebook so i'd like see a tweet write it up 200 words or something just that to have a link to post about that on facebook and get traffic that way i guess so i guess that got me like a little comfortable with writing i there was this editor cooper fleischman i don't know i said was because he's still alive but uh there is this editor cooper r.i.p cooper <laughs> <laughs> no cooper needs a death hoax um Cooper is the one that got me to start writing so cooper used to be at the daily dot and then he was at mike.com actual r.i.p Anyway, he was like, you should write about some stuff. Like, he kind of encouraged me to write. So I wrote, like, a couple, like, guides for him, like, a guide to do this thing on Twitter, like, a guide to make these kind of emojis. And it just got me more comfortable with, like, I was like, whoa, I could make an article. Like, that's crazy. (laughs) (laughs) But he let me freelance for him. So when I was doing social at The Hill, I also, for a year, freelanced for him at Mike um, as a contributor at Mike. And he let me cover whatever I want, too. I always, to be honest, would have probably wanted to write more stories about the stuff that I cover, but there was no audience for it. Like, three years ago, there was no audience for it. When you're, like, working sources, uh, are you talking to them on the phone are you yeah. chatting no like i hate no every single person i talk to wants to do interview over dm and i have a policy no dm interviews interesting I tell me why first of all it's a nightmare to transcribe <laughs> that's a huge part of it but more importantly you don't know anything like that you can't tell anything i mean i've done some interviews over discord which yep. is a little bit better and sometimes once you start chatting with them 
over text on Discord, you can be like, hey, can you just go to a voice channel? Because like you can voice chat really easily on Discord. Yeah. So I'll do that a lot. And like, then you just like record the Discord yeah, voice channel. Yeah. And I'm just like, hey, can we just like chat here? Because I want to be able to record it and just get your quotes right. Um, But like no 14 year old memer wants to get on the telephone ever. And you have to coax them into it. Do you think people <laughs> talk differently yeah. when you're on, when yeah, they're like totally. using their voice Absolutely. instead of their fingers? Yes. Yeah. And you can really understand tone and you can hear like how old people, you know, how old they really sound. And they're, they also just the stuff that they talk, you know, when it's person to person, it's like they kind of understand you a little bit more too. It's like, you're not just some faceless person on the internet. Um, I think they tell you way more. I mean, they, they don't really tell you much over text and DM and stuff. It's like you really have to, I mean, some people do, but you just want to get them on the phone. I always, I have just have a no DM interview policy. And I miss stories because of that. There's stories that I've not gotten because I refuse to do DM interviews. Do you find that it like snaps them out of the persona yes. that they exist in mm-hmm. with in their fingers? I mean, I guess that that's in some ways a good and a bad thing. It's a good thing in that you're discovering something new, but you're also taking them out of their native environment. But you want them to be out of their native environment. Like you're trying to talk to the person behind these accounts or like the person you want to get to know these people and you want to understand them and like their motivations and the way they talk. And, you know, there's all these like subtleties that you miss when it's, you're giving them time to respond to it. Like you can't clarify mid question you can't hear somebody trail off like it's really hard and it's almost impossible to do so I just I feel so strongly about that do you find that you reach points in these interviews where you um, encounter a digital artifact or a digital event that's difficult to talk about interpersonally with someone like I imagine if you're like hey so why did you post that meme or like why did you make this tumbler you know it's something that someone might have never verbalized before I was gonna say the one thing that's hard is a lot of people I mean can't put their work in context just the way that it's hard for me to even put my own work in context it's like hard to think out of yourself you know what I mean and so yeah, like sometimes I'll be like, why did you start this meme account? And they'll say something about why they did. But it's like really it has to do with some other bigger motivation or bigger trend or something. Or It's hard. I mean, that's true for any interview. But I think you get more out of it and more thoughtfulness when you have them on the phone than over DM where they're just going to be like, I don't know. You said that there was no separation between like the you who's looking into this stuff and the normal you, the not at work you. Is that like hard? Like, is it difficult immersing yourself so much and having an identity that's professional in this and also a personal identity? Do you feel like a need to carve out any space for yourself? I don't have a personal, this is my personal identity. I mean, I think once I dove like headfirst into Tumblr, like I kind of just thought this is my life. Like this has just been me like on and off, like I don't know. I've always been like that where it's like when I'm so into something, I just I need it to be my life because otherwise I can't have that thing where it's like, oh, I just go to my job from nine to six and then I turn it off after work. It's like I'm obsessed with this. Like this is all I want to do. It's all I want to cover. I want to be the best at it. So it's something I think about 24-7. Well, I think that the only pre-internet niche I can remember that people felt this way about is sports. Actually, where there's like, you know, people who are 
like guys who do morning drive time radio, you don't get the feeling like, wow, if they didn't have this show, they wouldn't watch the NFL. Just, you know, all of my Sunday, it's just a work thing. No, there's no one who succeeds in sports media who would not otherwise just be watching sports all the time and creating an identity based around sports. But I'm wondering, unlike sports, which I think are just kind of, they're always there. They change a little bit, but like, the NFL of today is not that different than when I was a kid. The ground under you is changing so rapidly. I mean, some stories that, that you've written that I was looking at that are two years old. I'm like, ah, oh, simpler times. <laughs> um, uh. How do you how do you deal with the pace? And does it mean that you can't like invest longer and amounts of times in a specific story because? the terrain changes so quickly? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's like all these human stories that you can do that could be longer. I mean, I'm not a very good long form writer because I have no experience with that. It's really hard for me to write a story that's long. Like, I don't like it. I like to do news stories that are quick because I'm also impatient and something happens and I want to write about it. So it's hard to like, but there definitely are, you know, longer arcs or like things. Like I wrote this story for New York Mag a while ago on this YouTuber that quit the internet. He was like, he went to VidCon, which is this annual YouTube conference thing. Um, was like, I want to be a YouTube star. Became a YouTube star, and then had like a mental breakdown and quit everything. And like, I think my story was like two thousand words. But that kid, like, you could write a long thing on it. I mean, there's an operatic element to some of this yeah. stuff where there are these people who are given unprecedented amounts of attention and often money at a very young age are totally insecure, both personally, but also like their status and their fame and their wealth is also very insecure. The puck moves away from Vine. Is it clear that they're going to be a star on some other platform? No, like everyone's almost about to have the rug pulled out from under them at all times. And to me, that's sort of what makes it all like tragic or what gives it all this kind of air of like, I rarely read about one of the people who populate their stories and think, wow, I'd like to change places with them or like, if only I was a YouTube star. Like, it's it's not very glamorous. No, it's so much work. I mean, it's so much work. I mean, it's grueling. Like, that's why the entire theme of last year was burnout. I mean, that's whatever YouTuber was talking about. And we saw a lot of top YouTubers burn out. I mean, being an influencer in general is grueling, backbreaking work. And then, you know, you're constantly getting it's terrible. You have no protections. It's a completely unregulated industry. You're getting exploited by brands. You're getting, you know, shit on by the media. You're getting it's just it's really hard. Um, So I never want to trade places. But yeah, I guess I mean, there are like longer stories that I probably could write. Sometimes I'll write like a little bit longer of a thing, like if it's like an investigation type thing. So much of what has come to um represent like tech journalism now I feel like in the last couple years has become about like is this bad this is bad right (laughs) or or good actually like you could also say other areas where it's like we're just trying to change the world and help people like it's all of these narratives of good versus bad and I think that the stuff you're covering occupies like a grayer area. Yeah, I don't that... want anyone to come away from my stories thinking like this is really good or this is really bad. I, I mean, one thing I feel strongly about technology, and I am more of an optimist than a lot of other people that cover technology, Um, just in the sense that like it's more like ambiguous, I would say. And it's more like this is the world that we live in now. And here are pros and here are cons. There's a lot of cons, but there's also these pros and I don't know. You were talking about like how things change and shift under me. Like I like 
that I like to like constantly see how things are evolving and new and tech journalism is weird because I think so often you're it's usually dedicated to covering like the corporate side of it or like the regulatory aspects of it and I always cover things from the user side yeah what what excites you going forward where are your interests going and where can you take this writing project that you're now pretty deep into. Oh, I know. I mean, thinking about how technology affects people's ability to communicate and connect is like my biggest life's passion. Like, I feel like I discovered something that is just, I'm obsessed with it and I can't get enough of it. And maybe I'll max out in a few years and quit and do something else. But I feel like I just want to keep writing or working in this space. As you've become, like, to me, you're the expert in this field. Maybe there's other experts out there. You're the only one that I know about. Do these YouTuber stars know who you are? Yeah. Are you you're, So, like, I guess my question would be, like, if you get too famous doing this stuff, will you still be able to have the <laughs> same access? Or will people know, like, oh, if you appear in a Taylor Loren story, you know? I uh, know. Well, first of all, they don't like to give press access unless they write some glowing bullshit thing on them so you know it's not like that's changed anytime recently I would say a lot of them know who I am because I covered it before anyone else like I mean this beat it's crazy because I made this beat off my interests and I feel like I got into the world really early and so I think there's a lot of people that I've known for years I mean since like we met basically when I was really on online and I just like met a lot of people and um, you know a lot of people that were smaller on YouTube blew up and I know them still and so yeah I mean it's not to say that I mean I know them in a work context like it's not like I, I'm not a YouTuber myself I'm not an influencer myself I don't really care to be like that you know I'm not trying to like get in front of the camera all the time um, although I like do TV hits and stuff but I'm not I'm not going to be a creator what is it like when you do those like TV hits and they're like want like thirty seconds Ugh, on this so topic? But I actually decided a couple weeks ago that or like two months ago that I'm not going to do it anymore. I had this stint where I was like, I mean, I feel this past year and a half has changed so much, Aaron. Like, people would never respond to my stories before. Like, people would never book me on an interview. People would never even pay attention to what I was writing. And when I was writing, like some of my best work, which was for Mike when I was just freelancing for Cooper, like people just didn't care and because it wasn't really in the public consciousness yet yep. and in the past year it really has become and so I it kind of scared me because I felt like shit like everyone suddenly knows about this like I need to be the best and if I'm not the best like someone else is going to be known as the best and so it's like I feel like I have to say yes to every podcast you know I'm happy to be on this one <laughs> uh, and I have to say yes to like you know every cheddar yeah. interview or like someone else will take my place and I'm trying to chill out about that do you see what's going on and see, okay, this is where it's going. I think it's going to be here in two years. Or are you like as in the dark two as years. anyone else? Or oh six God. months? <laughs> How far ahead of yourself do you see? People always ask me like, oh, what's the new Facebook or whatever? Yeah. I don't know. I kind of like have my own theories about stuff, but I usually just like to like see how it all happens. I'm not like some like savant that like knows where things are going. I would say it's just like a lot of times you'll see all these big shifts like with the Instagram aesthetic. It's like all these shifts are happening and in until someone articulates them, nobody really notices them. I mean, that's what makes the best like culture and trend reporting too. It's like all of this stuff is happening and you need someone to like give it a name or like tell you like, you know, whatever. So with technology, I mean, I think it's just like integrated into everything now. I don't know that there's a sh- I mean, there's this idea that a lot of VCs believe in, which is probably true that people are moving into small closed communities. 
And I see that with things like Discord and stuff and group chats. But uh, Is that going to make it harder to do your job because you can't just spy on people all the time? Uh, no, for I me. just join all the group <laughs> chats. <laughs> no, I don't know. I mean, I think like it's always going to be some kind of scale. Like Facebook groups, for instance, is a good example. Like you can still do amazing reporting on Facebook groups. You just join the groups. Right. But you do have to go out and find those communities more. And sure. you have to, when you join a group, like you have to be like, hey, journalist here. Yeah. Entering the no, room. I'm always like, hey, don't throw me out <laughs> I'm just here to lurk or like learn or whatever I always email an ad or I always um, DM the admin though before I join a group because I always want the admin to know that I'm like not trying to just like go in there and like fuck with everyone or I am not them. a narc yeah well also because they'll just deny you or not accept you but I mean I, I feel like she's going to think I'm a creepo stalker but Katie Natopoulos at BuzzFeed is someone I've always looked up to and like one thing I love about her reporting is like She's not judgmental about anything. Like, even when you can tell, like, it's, like, cringy and stupid and, like, obviously everyone's judging something, like, she's just, like, very good at being, like, this is what this is. And so, like, I think of that so much. I mean, it's funny because I was making fun of moms recently, being, like, moms are so stupid or, like, playing into that stereotype of, like, moms being dumb. And, like, she did some tweet. I think it was around the Momo challenge of all the moms sharing this Momo hoax. Um, Anyway, and she said something on Twitter about like that's like stupid and like she's a mom also and I was just like thinking like oh my god this is like what people say like this is how people talk about influencers and I hate it and I hate when anyone just like writes a group off or is condescending so with my reporting I try to like not be that way thank you so much Taylor sorry thanks for listening to my rant (laughs) (laughs) I'm like take the mom seriously (laughs) Um, but thank you for having me thank you And that was the Long Form Podcast. Thanks to Teller Lorenz. Thanks to our editor, Janelle Pfeiffer. Thanks to our intern, Louisa Garbowit. Uh, thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. And of course, the incredible people who make this show possible, MailChimp and Pit Writers. Thanks to them. If you'd like to get in touch, podcast at longform.org. If you're enjoying the show, maybe rate it on iTunes, leave a comment. It helps new people find the show. Yes, I know we've done uh, hundreds and hundreds of episodes, but there are still people who do not know about this show. So uh, tell a friend. We appreciate it. We'll see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docuseries, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com. Claude 3 from Anthropic is your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. With models at every point of the price-performance curve, you no longer have to make trade-offs between intelligence, speed, and cost. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between skill and speed. And Haiku is the fastest and lowest-cost model on the market, 
perfectly designed for high-volume, high-speed use cases. Join the thousands of enterprises who use Anthropic to navigate this new frontier. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude, C-L-A-U-D-E, today. Jumpstart your genius with Claude 3 by Anthropic.